all of you. Today I'm joined by Amy Otto and Dominique Roberson from Virtual Med Staff. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So could you both tell me a little bit about yourselves? Sure. I've been with Virtual Med Staff for about five years, but my healthcare career has spanned over 30 years with everything from um, being a genomic and ethnoteric testing specialist to working as a medical broker for large employers and um, more recently became an advocate for telemedicine. So kind of came full circle and now I'm just passionate about providing quality patient care to individuals in rural areas and communities. I'm so happy to be here today. I love your show and I listen to it often. It's a great resource for telemedicine. So thank you for what you do. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. Dominique, could you tell us a little bit about you? I have been in the healthcare world for about 15 years and um, really just about licensure and credentialing, looking to serve the patient, making sure every, everybody is compliant and making sure we deliver safe care to the patient. So I have actually been involved with telemedicine credentialing way before COVID, starting back in 2006. I've been in the industry for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's always nice to talk to folks who've been like in the industry, I guess, since before COVID. They've got an interesting perspective on how we've we've changed since the pandemic. So could you tell me a little bit about what virtual med staff is? Sure, sure. So virtual med staff, we've been custom creating, implementing, and managing telemedicine programs for gosh, over a decade. Mm -hmm. So primarily in the areas of telepsychiatry and teleneurology. We're part of Jackson Healthcare and one of the companies under their umbrella. And with our mission, our mission is to improve delivery of patient care and the lives of everyone we touch. So we help hospitals, health systems, clinics, really just see more patients whenever and wherever it's needed. So we have a dedicated teams and Dominique is the VP of our credentialing team. We have lots of different resources that help with a program from start to finish implementing the program and ongoing management, including the integration of technology. So really full service telemedicine with our specialties, the two primary being teleneurology and telepsychiatry. And is this something that's operating nationwide or do you have specific regions you're uh, operating in? So we're uh, across the country and we operate in everything from small critical access hospitals to large health systems and clinics. And more recently, we've had discussions with on-site employer clinics to provide mm -hmm. mental health resources to their employees, as well as some schools. So really across the span of anything you can think of that touches teleneurology and telepsychiatry. That's a pretty wide range going from professional adults to schools. That's a, <laughs> that's a big range of different populations you're talking about there. It really is. And that need actually came up with a current client of ours in Michigan that has health clinics in schools, and they've had such high increase of students with mental health issues and depression and anxiety that they are adding the mental health to their, their clinics for students, which I think is just such a great outreach in the community. Yeah, I know we've seen a huge increase in the amount of people who are requiring mental health care since the pandemic. So it's good that there are 
options like that out there for, for students and young people to be able to connect with those mental health resources. So when we talk about that too, this increase in folks seeking that kind of care, it becomes a little complicated because I know we're facing staffing shortages across the medical field, but specifically in mental health issues. Is that something that impacts the way that you do business, those staffing shortages? Absolutely. That's where we fill the gap. Um, You know, and I'm a a firm believer. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Kansas, farm (laughs) country, and I'm I'm just a believer that the quality of a person's health care should not be limited by their geographical location. Mm -hmm. It's nice to be able to augment coverage in clinics in these rural areas where sometimes they have to drive over three hours to see a specialist. We have a client in Western Nebraska where the wait for outpatient neurology visits was like eight to nine months. The closest clinic was like three hours away. So we've placed two full-time neurologists in their clinic and we've been able to reduce their wait times for appointments by two months or less. So mm-hmm. now instead of waiting nine months, they can get in to see a neurologist you know, in the following month. We hear about in rural communities where they're boarding patients for a week. I mean, mm-hmm. Danielle, can you imagine having your emergency department filled with mental health patients that you can't you can't do anything about if they're there on an involuntary hold, they need a psychiatric evaluation. So with telepsychiatry, that patient can be seen within the hour when they come in. And that allows the emergency department to either transfer the patient, admit them, or in so many cases, just stabilize the patient so they can be discharged. Definitely filling the gaps with this physician shortage across the country. I can't imagine a weak hold on just waiting for one provider. And I'm sure that's taking resources away from other patients, taking time away from other staff. That's just, that is such an issue. (laughs) It really is. Not to mention just the patient, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes just getting them started on medication can help stabilize them and even them out and just make them more comfortable. I, mm-hmm. I just can't imagine. A lot of hospitals have had to beef up their security in the ED. And it, it's just sad. It's so sad to me when I have these conversations because people are desperate for resources. Yeah, that's not a good situation for a patient to be in or for a provider to be in. Right. So what kind of conditions are we talking about being diagnosed through telehealth? Is it primarily those neurological behavioral health conditions, or is it a wider range of things that we can diagnose effectively through telehealth? So for us, our focus is really on those specialties because they're in high demand. There's such a shortage of psychiatrists and neurologists, and those particular visits really, they can be done very well via telemedicine. But there are so many conditions, Danielle. I mean, from the common cold, the skin conditions, ear infections, eye infections, so many things that can be diagnosed with telemedicine. And and during the pandemic, the most common telemedicine visit was for anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And one of the comments we received, which was super interesting from one of our current clients, is that they're in a rural area and that individuals were more apt to see a psychiatrist via telemedicine because they knew they wouldn't be sitting next to that psychiatrist at their son's football game or that they wouldn't bump into him at church, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. There's so many things can be diagnosed with telemedicine. It's kind of a funny story. My my mom lives in Kansas still, and she's never really understood what I do 
what my career is in telemedicine. <laughs> you can imagine that. Yeah. She, always, she was a nurse, so she always told everybody I was a pharmaceutical rep because she could wrap her mind around that. I've never been a pharmaceutical rep, but during the pandemic, she had gotten a pacemaker right before the pandemic. And she called me and said, you're not going to believe this, but I just saw my cardiologist on your sister's iPad. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, mom, that's what I do. It's just so funny. You know, telemedicine, because of the pandemic, has really accelerated. You don't have to explain what it is anymore. People are more savvy, and so many people have had a telemedicine visit, so they're no longer intimidated by it. So, definitely, many conditions and so many things that can be diagnosed and treated and managed through telemedicine. Yeah, it really intrigues me that you guys are doing a significant amount of work in neurology because we see a lot of folks practicing telebehavioral health because it is a specialty that lends itself very well to telehealth because usually you don't need a physical exam. You can effectively provide care over communications technology. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys are providing or allowing providers to provide neurology care through telehealth. Sure. So like psychiatrists, neurologists are in high demand, especially in rural areas, because oftentimes a neurologist doesn't want to move to the middle of nowhere where the school systems might not be um, up to par for them or, or for their children. So, um, you know, guess what? People in rural areas still have strokes. And in the case of stroke, time is brain. So every minute during a stroke, nearly 1.9 million neurons are damaged, leading a patient to become paralyzed, unable to speak, see, walk. Uh, so this can be reversed with quicker diagnosis and treatment and transfer to the correct hospital for life-saving life um, neurological in interventions. So when seeking emergency care for a stroke, like every minute counts. So um, I read some statistics about how a third of Americans live over an hour away from a primary stroke center. Yeah. So these telestroke consults can lead to quicker door to needle times, enhance patient care, and really ultimately save lives. Mm -hmm. So telestroke, teleneurology on the emergent side is rapidly growing. And as I mentioned with that client in Nebraska for the outpatient, it can, there's so many things that can be effectively done via telemedicine. Um, granted, like in, in EEG, some of those things they have to go on site for, but medication management and the ongoing management of so many, um, so many diagnoses can be managed via telehealth. That's just a really cool initiative that gets me very excited because there are so many people who just live so far away from those care centers and like <laughs> living in a rural area shouldn't mean that you're more at risk for these things than you are but unfortunately that's the the case that we're in now oh my goodness it is and if you look at just indiana alone um and mental health there's 102 designated mental health shortage areas mm -hmm. that's an area where we can definitely help um gosh the reports of anxiety and depression just skyrocketed during the pandemic. And um, the statistics on psychiatrists specifically, just because there are an aging population, 
Um, I read that 60% uh, of psychiatrists are 55 or older. Wow. And we're not able to backfill them with, you know, individuals in medical school that are graduating. So they're anticipating that by like 2025, um, the shortage will double, which oh my goodness. Is, is crazy. So mm -hmm. definitely telemedicine help can help, um, you know, same provider that might be licensed and reside in Michigan can see patients in Indiana, California, Texas, all in the same day, as long as mm -hmm. they're licensed in those states. So definitely, I, I see that telemedicine is going to be the future. A lot of what we do when we talk to different organizations about implementing telemedicine programs and telehealth programs relates to how complicated credentialing and licensure can get. Because I know that's something that stands in the way of a lot of care and not that it's not important, but it's something that can be a huge obstacle in a lot of cases. So could you elaborate a little bit on how licensure and credentialing, how you work with those to implement telehealth? We have over a decade of experience in, in best practices to share, which is helpful. In addition to that, I'm supported by some amazing teams of individuals that specialize in implementation licensing and credentialing because there's so much to know and it's a heavy lift mm -hmm. for both the client as well as you know getting physicians licensed and credentialed so fortunately we have a fully staffed credentialing team that's one of our distinguishing factors is that we do a lot of that heavy lifting for clients and dominique has just a wealth of knowledge and i you know i don't know what i would do without her because she's the go-to for everything licensing and credentialing related. And she definitely helps to speed up timelines. And yeah, I'll let her talk about it. She knows a whole lot more about it than I do. So Dominique, you have a lot of experience in, in credentialing. So could you explain some of those biggest challenges that come along with credentialing providers? Yes. So I think for me, the biggest challenge is trying to stay to make sure the patient is safe, because that's my main role, is making sure that I, I, you know, we deliver safe and quality providers patient care. Having the compliance and, and the, you know, like checking the quality, making sure that everything is good, but also doing it as fast as possible, because we want that provider to see the patient. So we have a challenge of all those rules <laughs> yeah. coming from the federal government, the state, you know, the accreditation bodies, everybody wants to put rules in, but they also want the provider to be credentialed and licensed as fast as possible. So that's the biggest challenge for someone in credentialing and licensing, because we are being pushed to go fast, 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 but we've got to preserve, you know, the quality. Right. So we've got to become more efficient, but at the same time, making sure the patient is safe and patient care is of quality. So that's the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, credentialing and licensing. I'm gonna talk about licensing first. When it comes to telemedicine, the main, the general rule is that the provider, either a physician or an advanced practitioner, because now as we are having less and less physicians, you know, we're gonna be using more and more advanced practitioner. Mm -hmm. advanced so, the main rule is that you need to have a provider who is licensed in the states where the patient is. That is the main rule. But what you have to look at now is that there are some 
of the elements that require an active license in the state where the practitioner is practicing from. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, I know of one health systems in Florida, which in their bylaws state that the physician has to have an active home license. And when I say home license, that means wherever that telemedicine provider is. So that requires two licenses, one from the home state and one from the practice state where the patient is. There are other issues of payers which require a license in the state where the telemedicine provider is. Indiana has a patient compensation fund. So now my broker is asking for my telemedicine provider who lives in Indiana, uh, even if the patient is in California, but because he lives in Indiana, they want him enrolled in the Indiana Patient Compensation Fund because the care is originating from Indiana. So you have a, another layer when it comes to telemedicine. Also, there are some states like Indiana that has a, a full medical license, but also you can add a telemedicine license to it. So if you're going to be practicing telemedicine, you need that add-on. Mm -hmm, right. <laughs> so when... when um, when you talk about licensure for telemedicine, you have to look at the state. You have to look at your payers. You have to look at your bylaws. You know, do I need one that is the provider prescribing? What does the DA require? You know, so there are more elements to consider. And that's what makes telemedicine a little harder. When it comes to credentialing, there are three types of credentialing really in, in the world, in my world. You have a standard <laughs> credentialing process. And that would be hospital or the uh, outpatient care or you know whichever facility will follow their process, their credentialing process, according to their accreditation body and their bylaws and their rules and regulation. And it's basically one process for one facility. Mm -hmm. And that used to be what we would be doing 15 years ago, you know, before telemedicine. Everybody was doing their own process. <laughs> <laughs> and then telemedicine, you know, comes into place. So health systems comes into place, you know, where now you have five hospitals and no provider, especially when we have a shortage of providers, want to complete five applications. Like think of it, think uh, completing five tax returns because you, you worked in five states. We, they started doing the second type of credentialing, which is delegated credentialing. And that's when we started seeing organization, which the only thing they do is credentialing. So that's a central verification office. And as a hospital, what you do is you contract with that entity to do your credentialing. They're faster because that's all they do. So they're faster. They credential, credential. They give you their results. And then we, the hospital board approves the provider and, and they do what we call privileging. They grant you privileges to see the patients. And some health system, big health system, have their own central uh, credentialing office. So when we come, this is not good enough, correct? Because if you are a small hospital, you don't have, a, you, you may not have the money to pay for a third party, uh, or, you know, credentialing company, or you just don't have a CVO. So for telemedicine, they created, you know, Joint Commission and all those accreditation bodies, they allowed, and Medicare, credentialing by proxy. Mm -hmm. So credentialing by proxy started before COVID <laughs> <laughs> and it's developing. 
And credentialing by proxy is the fastest way to credential your providers. Because basically what, what it is, is one entity is going to do all the work. They're going to do the credentialing, the privileging, they're going to approve a provider, and then they're going to send a letter to their contracted in other facilities as part of a credentialing by proxy agreement. And they're going to say, Dr. X is approved. And that facility is going to approve a doctor of a provider based on your recommendation. And there is no credentialing, no privileging on their end. They're approved based on your recommendation. So that requires a contract between all entities. That requires trust because my standards has to be the same as you. So usually that is done. You need to have the same accreditation standard. That requires communication because if a remote hospital sees problem with a provider, they need to report it to the main facility. If we don't have that communication back and forth, it's not going to work because I won't know as the main hospital, I won't know the doctor is bad at, with patients at your hospital. You need to tell me so that maybe next cycle, I don't approve him again and I don't recommend him to you. And so that is the best option for telemedicine and it's slowly picking up. It's, I will have thought people will pick it up faster, but it's not as fast as I wish it was. I think part of it's just that people don't know about it because I hadn't heard very much at all about proxy credentialing before today. So thank you for that overview. <laughs> I, I'm curious, is that something that gets more complicated when we're talking about credentialing within different states? Like when you have a provider who says, I want to operate in a couple of different states, is that something that gets more complicated? It could be depending on the relationship between those facilities, you know. So the way we work is, you know, at Virtual Medical Staff, we have what we call a, a program, a panel. Mm -hmm. And so on that panel, so I have one where it's uh, one neurologist. He is in three different states and he is in 27 facilities. And so for that one, yes, it's quite complicated because not everybody wants to do credentialing by proxy. Not everybody has the same application. And so you have several applications. <laughs> you have several approval dates. You have different license requirements. But if we work with a health system, one health system for the same program, which has facilities in different states, that health system, it's going to be easier because we're talking about one application. We're talking about one set of bylaws. That consolidation of rule and paperwork, then it's just a licensing -ish question. Like, do I need this license in that state? You know, do I need that license in that state? Everyone in telehealth knows we've got the end of the public health emergency coming up in May. So is that something that's going to pose an obstacle when we're talking about credentialing and licensure? So for me, my biggest fear is the DA prescribing. They, the DA was supposed to come up with a telemedicine DA before COVID and, you know, the Congress mandated them to come up with one and they still haven't. Now that they want to reverse back to the pre-COVID rules, we are back to like having to, to negotiate with their rules, their requirements for prescribing. And that's very important when our providers are psychiatrists. Yeah. <laughs> they, they prescribe and usually they prescribe control substance. 
Right. So, and actually, I'm I'm dealing with a case now for New York where they are trying to reverse back and fighting back, and and you know I'm not going to win against the DA, but I I do, <laughs> I do want them to come up with that telemedicine DA as soon as possible. Yeah, no, that is a a huge concern. I'm sure not just for folks in telemedicine, but for for their patients as well. To switch gears just a little bit, before we go today, I did want to talk about hybrid care and what that looks like in today's healthcare landscape, because that's something that's becoming more common, we see as telemedicine becomes more accepted. So could you talk a little bit about hybrid care can be a tool in today's telehealth system? I'd love to address that. And let's face it, we're never going to replace the need for the human touch and in-person visits. We're just not. Right. Even with wearables and remote patient monitoring, there are situations where you have to have an in-person visit. So I do think that the hybrid care model is to communicate as effectively as possible with patients and reduce their costs, time, travel, and also just think about which visits are best for telemedicine. The implementation really of an optimal hybrid model, it looks different to every hospital or to every clinic, but I do think that that hybrid model allows for a lot of innovation, a lot of collaboration. But again, I do think that it with telehealth, it's going to look different depending on the specialty in the hospital system. I'd agree, just looking at patient needs because you're not going to need the same thing for a behavioral health patient as you do for a neurology patient. So it's also interesting that hybrid model, it, it offers the best of both worlds. I think mm-hmm. something to be considered with the hybrid model is that it does allow a hospital system to attract and retain top talent because they could cover maybe nights and weekends via telemedicine, allowing that physician to have more work-life balance. Mm-hmm. So definitely benefits in augmenting coverage with telemedicine in addition to that, you know, on-site care. Yeah, that's something that I hadn't considered, but that's a that's a really good point that that's going to increase staff retention, which is an important part of our staff shortages that we're experiencing all through the healthcare industry right now. Yeah, for sure. So before we go for today, I do want to ask, what do you both think the future of telehealth looks like in this space? I really do think the future is bright for telemedicine, for sure, mm-hmm. especially as we have cross-state licensure and some policy that makes it easier. Reimbursement is changing, too, I think, for the positive as it relates to telemedicine, continuing to be able to provide exceptional care in areas that are remote or where there are significant shortages. Mm-hmm. But I, I do really, Danielle, want to thank you for all you do. The resource group is amazing. I mean, it's a one-stop shop for me. It's where <laughs> I go for uh, everything from staying to date on state and federal telehealth laws, reimbursement, just even new ideas from thought leaders. I just love partnering and hearing from other individuals in the industry. And you just do an amazing job. And I really appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. We really like the fact that we're part of a big nationwide consortium because it's not just the expertise that we have on telehealth. It's the expertise that people all over the country have on telehealth. So that's something that we are really grateful for. I agree with what Amy said, but I'm just going to add that I have seen entities, you know, like the states, the medical board, the licensure board, they are getting better at being more efficient when it comes to telemedicine. 
uh, you know, that cross uh, state licensure, you know, that refers to the compact uh, licensure for physicians, whereas uh, states in the Midwest, medical boards are so much more efficient. You know, it's going to get better and better and faster and faster, and they're going to adapt. They're going to have to adapt. Uh, everybody's going to have to adapt to meet the needs of the patients. It's going to move, going to move for, for the best. I look forward to seeing that move. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on here today and sharing your expertise. I, I really appreciate it. And I definitely learned a lot that I'm going to be excited about following up with you guys on in the future and gaining more knowledge about how credentialing, licensure, all of this works. So thank you. listening to a virtual view. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.